Welcome to the World of Wisdom podcast. My name is Amit, and today I think this you might be, well, I shouldn't say that, you might be our first repeat guest, um, but it doesn't necessarily matter, Stefan, because I've we've never talked on the air uh, before. So it is basically a new conversation. And for those that want to check out Stefan in the last episode, um, it's episode 60. When you spoke to Nils about, what did you speak about? The theme, the theme was um, health, well, actually more regenerative health from the lens of um, my personal experiences. And then we dove deeply into the topic. Yeah, it's, mm, yeah, that might be a part of this conversation too. I mean, of course it is because it's part of our journey. But um, what we played with as a headline a question, a guiding question for this conversation is um, how liminal are our times really? Mm. And uh, I mean, I don't know what I need to make visible here, um, but we have an ongoing conversation. You're you're one of those people that I tend to lean on for expanding perspectives and, and getting challenged. And uh, one of the things that I really appreciate with how you move in our interaction at least is that you have you embody the this uh, Jim Rutt saying of like clear uh, firm beliefs held lightly um, to me you have clear frames that you move between and then there's a lot of generation within that so I really appreciate that and so I'm, I'm very curious to lean in to the to the exploration unless and, and at the same time I want to invite you to sort of if you want to introduce yourself or if you want to make something visible. Thank you, Amit. Yeah, I'm super stoked to be here again uh, and talking talking with you. We've had great conversations so far, you and I. Mm, I feel very open today. So it's a little bit of um, come what may. This topic of liminality, or more specifically, the how liminal other times we live in, been um been a quite frequent theme in my daydreaming for the past uh, months probably but specifically due to the invitation to talk to you here about this i don't know how much background i should give i'm, I'm quite reluctant in, in framing myself and putting uh labels but what's it now 22 yeah so 10 years i've been working with trying to understand people and relationships through a journey of being a consultant and also self-exploration. One of the best tools for learning is teaching, right? And I come to view the world more and more in relationships and probabilities. And it's quite interesting to try to make sense of the world and to navigate in it because it's also it's not only a intellectual thing it's it's a quite embodied thing because it affects me personally and my family especially these past few years it's like going with an elevator up and down between the abstract and the very very embodied concrete and i think that's what i want to bring into this conversation is like um, going up and down with this elevator of the abstract concepts because that's usually where you find uh, coherence and how things fit together and then you can bring it down into experience talk from there as well mm. but this topic is is very alive in me uh, right now 
mm. I feel like I'm personally in a liminal space. So, uh, and it feels like the world is. So, love to dig deeper. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. I think one of the things, I guess, the one relevant frame uh, for a lot of the context that I'm hanging out, spending time in uh, today, like as an information that I consume or interact with has to do with comes from what's like recently I'm I'm hearing a lot of people throwing around this, uh, the liminal web as a frame for it. And and that would be the stoa and it would be rebel wisdom and it would be a number of of different sources like that. Lots of systems thinkers, um, lots of people doing great sort of framework work. Um, A lot of people also doing embodied work like working with sort of mysticism and different frames. And uh, the, I have a, a curiosity, I would say. I would say maybe even a tension around how liminal our times really are. Because I, I also sense a lot of arrogance in one way, like that, that we have a, this uh, proclivity or tendency towards overemphasizing our own influence uh, kind of being caught in that daydream that you pointed to, uh, ish, you know, that, that you want this, this wanting to be important, that desire to be important and to be, um, historical in a way. And at the same time, it seems to me that something is shifting and it seems to me that there is something happening and the quality of experience is changing, but I'm very curious around whether that is as a result of my own practice or if it is actually uh, something that one could say about the world. So how do you come to the topic of liminality? Like how do you, how do you think about it um, today? What, what are the components of it in, in your? Yeah. So it's, it's basically a way of trying to define the, the term itself. So maybe a disclaimer that I'm not an expert in liminality per se. Um, so good. Me too. Whatever my, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, but whatever my like take on it is, is it probably leaves out a lot, but, um, kind of shoot from the hip and see, see where it goes. So for me, liminality is a lot about, um, leaving one type of structure and not having reached or created the new one. So it's, it's a space in between and it's uh, right before COVID hit uh, me and a bunch of friends played around with maybe starting a, a project together, but it didn't took off for obvious reasons, but uh, we playfully called it. It's not a great commercial term, I think for consulting work, but we called it a fertile void, which I think is a, another word for liminality that has more, more oomph. In a way, you're leaving one probability space where there are no certainties in life, but there are probabilities. Like, it's likely when I wake up tomorrow that I will still be here. It's more likely than not, hopefully, for most people. Um, it's likely I will have breakfast and it's likely I will have some type of financial money on my bank account near the level I had yesterday, etc., uh, etc. Et so there are probability spaces that are quite. I wouldn't call it a fixed structure because it's not, it's always moving, but it, it has a 
likelihood built into it. So, and liminality for me is like when that structure starts to break down, and you enter a space where uh, probability goes down and uncertainty goes up. And it is a very fertile space as well because it's it's a void. There's there's nothing really there. It's just a very chaotic, unresolved, un incoherent type of uh, energy. And then after a while, and we don't know how long, but you enter a new type of probability space or structure. This can be anything. This could be like a relationship you're leaving, uh, maybe a friend or a, a romantic relationship that uh, is, is uh, falling apart for, for different reasons. And then you're in a liminal space of not knowing who you are anymore. And then after a while, you find yourself or and someone else. And then you're in a new type of probability space. But this space in between is is, uh, is a deeply felt experience of uncertainty, I think. Mm. Uh, but it also carries with it the component of uh, what type of mindset you have around it, because it's also very fertile. I believe everything is possible, which opens up the questions about agency and interconnectedness and how, how much uh, can we affect the outcome here. But uh, if we take this far enough, I think it's quite seems quite likely to me, at least, that the liminal space is always present in every second. I mean, if you have done deep self work or meditation or psychedelics or yeah, there are many techniques to to reach a level of awareness where there is a, you experience the world as liminal as per se. I believe that to be true. But I also believe in that there are trends, uh, structures of relationships and processes that have momentum and that if you can identify those and to some extent how they might inter uh, interact, you can at least draw some assumptions about probabilities, again, knowing that any second they, they can break down. Um, so I think that would give, it's a little bit about my toolkit around liminality. It's like there's probability space, there is fertility, there is uncertainty, there is structure and process, but there is also uh, the movement between complexity, chaos, and then back to complexity, which is also uh, one of the reasons I've become increasingly interested around uh, markets because they provide a very deeply felt experience of liminality and probability space in real time in, in the short time frame. So it's a really interesting uh, aspect of being. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good starting point. I, f I feel myself being challenged by the probability component about it. I, I don't I haven't necessarily thought so much in probability, at least not rigorously thought about probabilities. I mean, I, I do tend to think in like likely and unlikely, but not necessarily in like serious thinking about probabilities. The liminality to me is definitely that um, felt sense of uncertainty um, and felt sense of possibility where there is like, I'm on this mountaintop and I can, I can feel the turbulence kind of, and, and I know that depending on which, which part of the wind that I'll be catching, it will push me in one way or the other. I've been thinking about, because you brought in that piece of agency and uh, Nora Bateson uh, said something which I really resonate with strongly is that the, 
path to agency is accepting that we have none. I'm, I'm bastardizing her quote, but she's kind of saying that we have no, we have no agency until we start believing that we have no agency, then we have a little. Um, and I think that's, that's also really potent because it's like the way that I've been playing with it recently is like the, this moment is inevitable, but this moment is also uh, the starting point of all the subsequent moments that are about to happen. And so it means that it also holds the infinite potential of, of everything that is about to unfold. And I, I feel that when I'm in chaos or in complexity or in uncertainty in a different way. Like, and at the same time, at the same time, I would want to say is that there seems to be a, a capture by this moment where we are, we are stuck in, in, oh, this is difficult to express, but there seems to me that we are stuck in the isness of the moment and we are not necessarily seeing, there's like two stories going on. So one is like the dreaming story of like, oh, I can, I can see all of these things unfolding and happening. All this co-creative potential is happening and the leveling up of the global consciousness and we are now going planetary. This is exactly what's happening out of empire era into planetary era. And at the same time, there is another, another sort of pull in the other direction, which is like, everything is inevitable. It's all going to shit. Uh, the whole system is collapsing. Um, you know, we're going to have third world war. There's nothing that we can do about it. It's inevitable. I'm trying to hold both. I think that's wise. We don't know with certainty which direction it's going. Um, but there is some research backing up the claim that in complex systems, if you have two strong signals that are opposing and they keep increasing in, in signal strength, that's a very strong sign that the old system is breaking down. And I think that's what we're experiencing now. There is the sense of everything is going to shit. <laughs> and also, wow, we live in a time where more things are possible to manifest than ever. And we actually have a shot at being a something more beautiful. So, and when both are strong, something you feel in your body, whether or not you're aware of it. I think uh, most, if not all people on earth are experiencing this to a larger degree now than 20 years ago. Yeah, there's a, there's an unstuckness to this moment in a way. It's, it seems like even if you are on the, on the doomsday side, it seems to me that people actually believe that everything is possible. Yes, but it's also, I'm, I keep getting um, pulled back to the Antonio Gramsci quote. Uh, the old world is dying and the new one is yet to be born. Now is the time for monsters. You can also replace monsters with wonders, um, which I personally prefer. But uh, a recent event that I think embodies this is when Will Smith slapped BlackRock. Oh, Kid Rock. What's it called? Chris Rock. Chris Rock. Chris Rock. It's, um, it's like we're, we're, all of us or many of us are carrying, uh, there is an undercurrent of emotions and change that is manifesting itself through us in different ways. And 
I think the bad news is that we tend to gravitate towards bad news more than we tend to uh, gravitate towards good news uh, per default. It's our evolutionary wired to seek bad news on default, and that's an explanation for why most news is bad because it gets more clicks. Um, so that's the potential bad news. Uh, potential good news is that this whole liminal web, or what you want to call it, and other spaces as well, and relationships where we try to create the right conditions for people to use more of their prefrontal cortex and emotional regulation and uh, compassion and self-awareness and being in the present and not getting amygdala hijacked by algorithms and news. Uh, and I think if this can grow, it might reach a tipping point where they actually gain some agency. But as you said, and I, I strongly believe Laura Bateson is right, um, based on her research and, and uh, the work she's doing, that we have zero to none agency, but when we realize that, we paradoxically gain some agency. Hmm. It's kind of a nice frame even for, for the discussion because that's a little bit my resistance in, and I mean, I consume, I hang out a lot. I spend a lot of time, I confess, like I'm deeply addicted to these sense-making spaces. I really enjoy spending time in, in them. Um, they are very stimulating to me. They give me a lot. So like, I'm, I'm not, I'm definitely part of it. I'm not putting myself aside from it. But in a way, there, I almost believe that that's, it's more a dream world. Like we, there is more agency available there. And so that's what I'm a little bit curious about. Like this, this belief that we go in with, that we can actually change things. Is that handicapping us to uh, being effective or, or actually propagating real change? Or, or is it, does it actually go and fly under this skill building idea that, that we imagine together and then we imagine together and then we have the capacity, build the capacity to imagine also in the quote-unquote real world um, and bring these, this possibility with us mm. as we interact. How, how mm. yeah. Yeah, many parts to that question. I mean, some of the, the most difficult personal journeys I've been through, I'm wired in a way that there is always light at the end of the tunnel. Thus far, I'm a born optimist. Doesn't mean I'm always jolly and in a good mood, or <laughs> doesn't mean uh, I experience my the current uh, way we're living as somewhat difficult right now, being a parent during COVID, post-COVID, and liminal, high liminality space, but. I'm cautiously optimistic about what is possible. And I do feel that's a firm belief for me. That's an axiom that if you believe it to be possible, then that increases the likelihood that it will be. Maybe that's in part what's required is like when, when things are feeling tough, if we can remember or retrain this ability of actually being hopeful without being naive. 
then I think we have a shot. If we can't do that, I think it's game over. That's the cynical part of me. Um, mm. So, again, back to the liminality and the, the fertile void. It's like, uh, is there in this painful breaking down that I'm experiencing, whether that is uh, strictly personal uh, relationship I'm leaving or uh, financial issues or self-identity or what, what it may be, or if it's, it's, if it's really the big systemic level, like geopolitically, uh, globally, the global financial system or culturally, all of these shifts that we're perceiving. Um, if I can just, at least a part of me, keep believing that it's possible to actually, uh, it's possible to create something better, then I think that's the recipe not only for survival, but for thriving. And that's my, my optimistic view. Uh, it might not be true, but I would not want to be with myself if I didn't believe that to be true, because then uh, I wouldn't keep doing what I'm doing already. I want to speak to what I'm hearing, just, just from my the frame of thinking or feeling, rather, that I have, which is... I think there's there's like a difference here that might be fun to to dig into, but let let's see what you pick up from it. Um, so I've kind of let go of my optimist because um, I've I've self identified as a pusher of rivers. That's been my uh, like mo up until very recently, like getting in the river and trying to push it and realizing that it isn't, it's not going anywhere. It doesn't matter. It keeps flowing. Um, and then I've been like an aspire, aspiring sort of uh, floating with the river. And then it's been, it's been pretty intense, my river. Um, it's been moving pretty fast. Like there's been a lot of obstacles in the river. So it's been a small riverbed, if you will. And, and starting to sort of do a movement practice um, starting to meditate, starting to have these types of conversations and like lean into my my passions and interests have removed a lot of, of those. So I can like see now and that seeing has allowed me to kind of calm down the flow of the river. And now for for parts, in parts of my life, I can actually flow with the river and like lie down and like relax in that sense. And one of the main obstacles that I've had to remove is, this is going to sound wishy-washy because it's used so much, but it is this judgment piece a little bit, or like this, um, I have had to deprogram myself that only movement that goes up and to the right is uh, good, if you will. And so I, I, I start, it started for me with dance, like actually thinking about dance, which is movement that goes nowhere but like how much energy that it generates and it holds. And then I've been using words as like excitement or agitation, you know, but, but in their basic sense, like without the positive or negative connotation, but just as movement, like we are agitating something as in stirring it, like, you know, making it move. And so 
yeah, and, and, and combined with, or like what, what's been my, what's starting to become my support or bedrock uh, in a way is a faith or trust, whichever is less sort of triggering to use. I use them interchangeably in this sense that, that there is a move. Like in every, at, at every point in time, there is a move to be made. And then as long as I keep moving, it doesn't matter so much. Um, and the reason why this is important to me, like I, I feel it, like I, I really feel the current in my body now as I'm speaking as well. But I've um, been working with what's popularly called, you know, the dark masculine, like this type of ravaging, um, very aggressive energy. And it's been pretty, my life has been pretty devoid of it. I don't, I don't have a lot of access to it. And it's been, because it's been so suppressed, it's been bubbling out. And so I've had like really been able to, or like had a, a pattern of boiling over. And I felt a lot of resistance to that because I've heard people in that boiling over. And then um, through this movement practice, being with that energy and like allowing it to, to find it first and then allow it to move to, to, to without necessarily control, but just the only object is to, to make it move. Um, and how that has released so much pressure and like tension where like I felt like on, in my own system, I was, when I was thinking positively or like when I held on to my optimist, I felt like there was the liminal boundary of me, like my capacity, and I filled it. And letting go of that idea of positive outcomes, like good outcomes, and putting my target, setting my target to just moving, just keep moving, has kind of deflated. So like all of a sudden there's space between the boundary of my system and myself. I'm not in tension. And like that, that slap that you spoke about, like it seems like that was like a drip that made the bucket flow. Like he went into a phase shift. And so he had to act on something. And, and that might have been, you know, a stack of emotions um, that was underneath that had nothing to do with Chris Rock. And then that just added, added on top. So instead of him laughing about it, he went up and Will Smith went up and, and slapped him. And I feel like I'm further from that slap than I've been in a really long time. And at the same time, I'm very much in contact with like the pain that I feel around the whole Ukraine thing. I mean, I've, I've just never, I've never done that before, but I've been like crying uh, around the tragedy that's unfolding, like, you know, and, and the, the, the suffering of civilians and so forth. Um, and at the same time, I can see more perspectives than just that. But, but it's, I don't know if it makes any sense, but there's something around the, 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 the deprioritization of words like progress, scale, success, growth, and increase of, of words that are like non-directional or maybe more feminine even, like, but like connection, uh, play, dance, uh, joy, grief, even. But like words that aren't necessarily taking me anywhere, but it's moving me. What comes up in you? I say that. Yeah, a lot of things. It's a great mirror on my own optimism. I think we have a different um, angle 
into it first. My optimism is not anchored in agency, it's anchored in faith. So I have this view that if it's possible, then that's a good thing. Um, and then after that, it's up to me to make a choice whether I act on it and, and how. So I've had periods in my life where my identity broke down and I didn't experience any agency, but I still felt optimistic. And good things did not happen through my agency. It just happened through me. So, so I'm totally on board with the letting go part. Um, that said, I think the greatest teacher for me right now when it comes to definition of what is good is uh, mother of my child, Ellen, uh, because she really embodies the, the feminine uh, in that aspect of counter direction, rather non-direction. That's often where we clash, where I have this idea of what is good. And she accepts difficulty as an integral part of life and fertility space. It's probably one of the reasons why we found each other is to uh, integrate these two perspectives somehow. And um, yeah, I'm thinking a lot about what what is good and what is not. Because I think it's it's a, such a thorny subject that it's easy to start becoming relativistic and not aspiring to things that actually might be good on one side. And on the other side, it's trying to impose your definition of good onto someone else, say a whole country like Ukraine, mm -hmm. is never, it seems, a good thing. It can be quite an evil thing. Um, so it, it's this, uh, yeah, it's this dance, this balance between not becoming too washed out and not becoming too firm, but instead moving between, oscillating between uh, having and expressing agency and firmness, the masculine aspect, and then capitulating and, and uh, uh, agreeing that there is no agency, and I and I that's another axiom for me. I, I deeply believe both are true; they're just not the same thing. Uh, and I think it's uh, it's counterintuitive to hold two perspectives like that. But but for me, it's uh, it's feeling increasingly true, and it depends on where I am in the dance. Do I need to let go more, or do I need to find a different type of structure and agency here to move with? Because uh, in order to dance, you need to move your feet. Mm -hmm. And you actually need to decide where to put them together with the other person and the room, of course, and then just let it flow through you. And it's most of the part, it's not a conscious thing, but there is still some agency there, paradoxically. Yeah, so that's what comes to me. It's like um, movement. I think you said it well, like letting movement flow through is, is a good uh, good view on this. Yeah, maybe that's part of uh, how you deal with liminality. It's like, okay, if we accept the premise that something, an old system probability structure is breaking down and the new one is yet to be formed, what is the best way of uh, 
navigating this. Well, it's probably to move. Yeah, it's, there's there's that like to to braille <laughs> braille the system braille braille, braille the liminal edge um, to to test it like in, and to to investigate it and, and to play with mm-hmm. it. Um, there's also something. Yeah, I was recently pointed to. Uh, by a couple of people, which tends to happen, but uh, the work of Christopher Alexander, which I haven't interacted with yet, but I'm, it's queued up in my audiobook reader. But then there, there are two concepts there that I've, the way that I've gotten them explained to me at least, are have a strong resonance. And one part is uh, generative sequences. So basically, instead of us focusing so much on the objects that that we want to achieve, focusing on the how, like how we get there. And uh, the best view or like image that I got was this origami, <laughs> origami figure where, you know, if you try to describe this one as you as it's folded, it's very, very difficult. It's very difficult to figure out how it was made. However, you know, I can also say, hey, Stefan, you know, take a square piece of paper, fold it across and fold it across again. And as you're engaging with the sequence, something's being created. It's a different measurement mistake. And then, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm trying to stay away a little bit from the good, like that type of frame. And rather, what I'm experimenting with for myself is like, is it more life or less life? Mm. Yes. That's like, you know, that's that's in... In everything, that's from like, where do we put, we're renovating a house. And so where do we put this uh, lamp? Is it one centimeter towards the window or, or one centimeter towards me? And then you shift it and you're like, more or less life. Huh? And then it's, so it's very sort of hands-on. It's not, that's not uh, woo-woo at all to me. It's like, it's very um, embodied and, and material as well, more or less life. Do I get more life? Light? Yes. Nice. And so, and also leaning into that idea that there is a right place for it. Things have a place which is going to give the most life um, possible, given the context and given, of course. And that's probably another thing to underline, like given the context, because it is contextual. Exactly. And how large context you have to, you have to slice it somehow. Yeah. yeah, it's easier with uh, a house. <laughs> a house is a good slice. <laughs> but if you have a great house in a really bad neighborhood, is there more life? Um, yeah, I think that definition of good uh, strongly resonates with me, and I reached the same conclusion. So a few years ago, we experimented with starting a, a metamodern uh, political party in Sweden called the Initiative. Uh, it was fun and also very difficult. Um, and we had close uh, relationship and communication with the founder of the Danish party, the alternative, uh, Uffe Elbeck. And um, in one of our talks, I don't, I can't give him the right type of how he phrased it, but he said that. I mean, he's been a strong proponent for sustainability. I mean, alternative is that Denmark's Green Party basically didn't have any before. But he expressed that one of his recent, at the time, uh, insights was that uh, 
sustainability is a pretty bad measure because life does not sustain itself. It keeps changing. And he said, uh, what I now believe is in, are we creating conditions for more life or less? I had already felt that, but he put it so eloquently and precisely that it just hit me instantly. Yeah, that's that's. I think that's my definition of goodness is uh, more life or less life or thriveability is another word I think is, is quite good. Uh, then, of course, you need to go deeper and define uh, what's life. And part of life is also death and destruction. And it's cyclical. So what part of the cycle are we in? And it might be necessary in part of the cycle to let whatever is breaking down and dying to recycle and do that with grace and uh, dignity whilst also seeing how can we use the metaphor of a gardener fall arrives and then winter and then spring uh, how do we prepare now for the next spring and sprouting season that can be a useful metaphor yeah it's a useful metaphor and it's like, it also takes us away from, I really enjoy that metaphor. I should, I'm not, I'm not critiquing you in, in that way, but uh, something that I'm missing a little bit there is, is sort of a, it's too clean in a way. Like there's not enough sort of blood and dearth and pain and sorrow and grief and all of the things that also come with, you know, it's like, it's not any flower that you have to sacrifice. It's your favorite one. It's not sort of any human that you have to sacrifice. It's your mother. You know, it's, it's like, that's when it gets tricky because that's, that's when you have the discernment issue of how do I choose to actually move with this? And it comes to the agency is one way of putting it. But if we have no agency, I mean, there's still like a, still responsibility you know I, I felt it really strongly when when Russia uh, invaded Ukraine I was completely off for for like a couple of weeks for sure and and my instinct was like I don't I don't get it like I don't know I don't have access to violence in a way that I understand what's actually going on here and I was just afraid like really terribly afraid and I still feel it like I was I'm in Iceland right and so I was out um late just picking up some food because we needed to like add stuff towards the, and and then I walk in and there's like a bunch of American um soldiers in the in the store it's like oh shit they have a NATO posting I mean they have a NATO posting here Iceland's part of NATO it's like oh <gasps> you know and we had uh, some NATO planes that are patrolling the airspace they do patrol airspace and they uh, they flew over Reykjavik instead of the normal route because of weather and that, like hearing the fighter jets, kind of that engine roar, like it's like, <gasps> you know, it's like a triggering, which isn't necessarily there. And, and, and so it's like, it's good. It's useful to have the image of the garden. And, and to me, it's almost, almost misleading because of, because of the, at least to me, who has done only a limited amount of gardening, the, the, the the activity of gardening seems peaceful, inherently peaceful. And and I think in a way, the type of transformation we're in now is if you are the least bit attached to it, it's going to look very violent. 
and it's hard to not be attached to because it's inherently existential for all of us, I think. It's like... Yeah, thank you for that. There are images coming that are not yet vivid, but trying to somehow synthesize what you just invited with gardening. Again, it's the context. If you have a garden in a peaceful country, the countryside, the soil is fertile and you're a good gardener, it's, it's quite probably a quite peaceful thing to do. If you, if you live in a country that has been invaded, I'm just speculating now because I don't have any lived experience, so trying to stay humble and respectful but a lot of people in ukraine are farmers uh, and when you have your crops destroyed it's experiences exactly what you just betrayed but it doesn't stop you from the need to keep gardening or farming it's just that it's a different landscape now so uh, if you use that approach to life i think you can manage in any situation, basically. You just have to be open to the fact that it's uh, life and gardening is not necessarily a peaceful activity. Something where you need to play with what you have. And there are years of drought in, in the garden or in life. Um, and there are years of plenty. Yeah, we're starting to become a little abstract. I would like to bring it down to more like concrete. Yeah, but I, I see Thanks, in, in what but, you were but there's speaking something about. Here. Yeah, in what you were speaking about now to bring it back to the question that we ha- that we have posed for ourselves, right? With the the how liminal are our times. I think at least it gives us a couple of u- useful heuristics uh, that I can kind of tease out. So let's I'll, I'll test them and see. But one one thing is that if we even if there's war, you know, it, it, you might have to pick up a weapon, but you also have to make sure that the seeds make it into the ground. Because, you know, there is there is death at the end of both of those paths, and both of them are probably similar similar in, in certainty. You know, it's like with no food, it's very difficult to survive. At the same time, um, you know, if you have no land to put the food on, that's and that's the kind of points to our times, right? We, in a way, we need to keep gardening, um, and and we are. We are also being, and this might be completely tasteless because of the the sort of tangibility of the situation. So, so I say that with, I say this with humility and respect because of, we both have friends that have escaped and and gotten out and have family left and and so forth. So it's very tangible, but it feels like these these are the times that we live in as well that we we cannot be swept up by the dream that it will be over soon. And and we need to keep doing the small things, gardening. Like we need to tend to the tiny, as Nora Baton would say. And we need to have whatever spare capacity that we have in that system, either for ourselves or for those that we are in service of. Um, we can try to build the future, but but the future is pointless unless we solve for now. And so there's that that balance and that movement of being with 
sick kids and recording a podcast with lots of words, you know. <laughs> we have many words. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to uh, stick out my neck a little bit and make a proposition. Um, maybe we haven't defined the... Maybe we should do that first real quickly, at least from, from my point of view. Uh, the story that I entertain a lot is that we are leaving a big wave of life that has manifested itself for quite some time and that uh, generations of us has grew up in. Uh, that's the industrial age, the modernity, all the institutions like school, hospitals, parliaments, all of it. It's built on a worldview that that is possible. And I think that whole thing is come coming crashing down. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean I want it to, and it doesn't mean I know how it will come crashing down. But to me, it seems clear that we are leaving something that has worked for most of humanity for a long time, and uh, that has now reached its limit for different reasons that takes quite some time to explore. And whatever label you want to put on the new type of paradigm is... Uh, I mean, up for grabs, but I think the easy, low-hanging fruit one is the information age. Like where the industrial age was characterized by strong centralization uh, and then increasingly decentralized ways of organizing ourselves. But now we reached a point where we have this extremely powerful technology and in, in internet and also algorithms that makes it opens up new possibility spaces for uh, for us to uh, seek information and to organize and collaborate. And we have not yet mastered this at all. We're just playing around and some things are blowing up. Like, uh, well, we can talk a lot about social media and Facebook, etc. Um, but when you say, sorry, but when you say information age, that, that puts me in like a 250-year type uh, time frame cycle. Is that what you mean? Or do you mean... No, I mean... I actually mean, um, I refer to Alexander Bard's uh, history description where we've gone through different shifts that are are becoming shorter and shorter. So um, if you look at information as, as, as a core asset of life or human life at least, then the first information invention was the spoken language that we're exercising now. So you, you move up one abstraction level in order to make sense of the world and you can collaborate more effectively and efficiently and get more things done because you can tell stories. Don't eat that plant or uh, our clan is great and the clan over there is bad. Uh, and then the next big uh, step was the written language. So another abstraction level and then we could keep records across time much more effectively and space. Uh, so who owes who what, and we could start writing laws, and then we could uh, coordinate large armies and start differentiating society into a feudal kind of structure. Uh, and that happened, I mean, the, the, the first invention was somewhere between 100, 150,000 years ago, and the second one was eight to 10,000 years ago, the uh, birth of the agrarian society. And then that lasted until the, basically the printing press, which democratized access to information 
took a few hundred years for it to truly manifest. But I think the the birth of the United States of America and uh, uh, the French Revolution in the both in the 18th century were quite uh, significant pivot points. And we've been living in this modern story now for a few hundred years. So it seems like short, but it's it's actually a shift that if there's only been three inventions before and now it's the fourth one, we're talking about societal change that is greater than any one of us has ever experienced. And it's probably going to take decades or even centuries for it to unfold. Perhaps I'm just speculating. Mm-hmm. If we take this... This is a story, right? It's a way of looking at the world. But if we take that as uh, true, or at least pointing towards truth, then if the old world is dying and the new one is yet to be born, and at least we know that the new one carries with it a potency of more distribution of information and more, even more effective, efficient, collaboration then that's a great thing just trying to figure out how we're going to do it while not breaking ourselves in the middle of it because there are a lot of externalities created by the old system that we need to deal with like climate change and ecosystem collapse strong identities attached to the nation state etc and if they're not working anymore then yeah that's what living in space feels like but if there is a direction somewhere here, it's like what my proposition is based on this expose, then that it's more important than ever to start gardening. However you define that, like how can you create more conditions for life in whatever small or large way you can and how you want to define it. But moving a lamp is one thing or building a whole new web3 organization uh, structures that creates conditions for thousands of people to collaborate and create more regenerative uh, health or sound finance that's up to you but uh, I, I do believe everything everyone can do something but you need to reach a threshold, I think, where you realize that this is happening, first and foremost. Then you need to figure out who you are in this and who you want to be with. Moran Cerf is a, a neuroscientist who says that, based on his research, the most important choice you can make is who you hang out with. Because we're vastly more affected by our relationships than we think, because we tend to believe our we're individuals but uh, figure out who to do it with and then what the next step is in the dance Uh, and for me it's uh, how can I garden more without being attached to a specific outcome necessarily that was a long rant I love that because you're pointing to no but you're you're pointing to beautiful things like one one thing it's the activity of gardening Um, and then we say Oh, but that's, you know, such a hippie, um, <laughs> that's such a hippie analogy. Everybody talks about gardening these days, but it's like the garden can be whatever. So it means that how can you inter- interact with your context in order to create more life? Mm. That's, that's like one of the um, imitations that I heard. And the second one that I'm 
that I wanted to underline, at least you, know, you objectify if I'm interpreting you in the wrong way, but, but there is an invitation to um, interact directly with creating conditions for life, not through, not by means of proxy. And I mean, I mean that in don't do one thing to make money so that you can pay for the other thing. Do the other thing. That that's you know, and I recently read um, the Ray Dalio book, the uh, sort of something something new order, new world order principles for the navigating the new world order. I think it's called. I think it's time scale is um, too short. It's only five hundred years, but uh, yeah, that's exactly exactly what I talk, took with me. Um, but even in the last five hundred years. It, what he was pointing to, he's like, on average, between like 1890 until 1946, you would have had, and I don't know if these numbers are the right ones, but he's like, you would have been, uh, you know, had a portfolio gain of, of uh, an average, like percent, uh, something. However, in that time period, um, your portfolio would have been completely eradicated regardless of which currency you were engaged in because of uh, movements like complete collapses and, and complete bankruptcies and so forth. So it doesn't matter that the average number is increasing because the, the actual events on the ground would have completely eliminated your, your wealth. And so hence, um, that's my strong encouragement is to engage with life, increasing activities directly rather than through proxy or through means of money specifically hmm. what else do we have as far as navigating liminality i mean connecting to body but everybody says that but but really yeah. working with your own nervous system because i i think the world that we live in is the world that we see and the world that we see is something that depends completely on the state of our nervous systems. And so to cultivate a calm, relaxed nervous system and state and then go out and move in the world is, um, in my experience, it's time well spent. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I would also like to add to that. Uh, you can view all of humanity or biological life on Earth even as uh, an interconnected web of nodes and let's play with the idea that humans are sort of nervous system your adjacent nodes matter if you are in relationships that do not create more life for you or around you then you should have a real deep thought about why that is and what needs to be done about it which is way more easier said than done, of course. It's difficult to cultivate a centered, relaxed, um, present nervous system if everybody around you are yelling and being driven by motivations that are far away from your intentions. Whereas if you put yourself in contexts and relationships where you feel nourished, you can scaffold each other towards whatever you're aspiring to. And this is a deeply felt experience I, me and my girlfriend have had during COVID uh, and isolation. How unnatural it is to be away from people that nourish you. 
yeah so i would i would like to add that to to the equation and uh in any case if you you cultivated together or alone and uh, nature always aids because nature is in every moment it's in balance and when we tune into that we we start resonating with that and feeling that in the body as well so if i if i'm uh, really in a bad space just spending some time in the forest or by the ocean calibrates me. I would like to have more of it uh, than I currently give myself, but it, it's uh, I think it's an underappreciated thing, especially in uh, intellectual circles, to actually just go out in nature and let go. And it sounds like, and it is, the most hippie thing ever. Right? Just go out in the woods, man. It's going to be fine. <laughs> but it's it's true. It's experientially true. I think it's subjectively true because in nature, there are no stories. There are no stories. It's just being. That's, that's, you're pointing to something here as well with regards to, the, to stories. Stories are great. Yes. They're fantastic. They've done great things for us as humans. And we're addicted to them. So there's also like an invitation to let go of, of some stories and, and to sometimes maybe just stay with the possibility that anything is like that optimism that you were speaking to that underlying sort of faith or belief or trust that, um, that there's a relaxation in letting go of the story of not having to narrativize everything and to, um, to also, that's another sort of oscillation that one could inherit between <laughs> the the most powerful, agentic, wonderful being uh, and completely powerless, <laughs> and, and um, not you know just just the, to allow oneself complete hope and feeling on top of the world, and also to feel completely stuck and completely under it, and and to try to find. A breath in between, which is easier probably in nature and easier when things aren't screaming and kids aren't screaming. But I, yeah, actually one of the things that has been transformative to me is to try to look for states instead of things to do. That's actually one of the most useful. So I had this idea very concretely that parenting was something that I did. And so it meant that every time we were late for school or every time my kids uh, were four and six didn't want to get out of the door, that somehow reflected on me. It became part of my identity as I was doing certain things, doing parenting. And I think that would go for doing for work, doing doing work or doing whatever we're doing. Whereas someone helped me to realize that parenting is, is, is being, it's a state. I am the parent regardless of. And so it meant that I could allow myself to teach at a time when it was appropriate, when we had time to get out. We didn't have a time to, to, to fit. Like we didn't have to get to school at that certain time. And then it could allow me to step into service and just put on those damn Wellingtons, you know, or like the Gummistavlar, um, when, when we had to get out the door and we had to make it to school. And it didn't matter. And, and like the amount of relaxation that that has given me to let go of the story that Parenting is something that I do, and every moment of parenting is a teachable moment. Uh, you know, and just be the parent 
and be there for my kids, something that my wife does much more eloquently and gracefully than I do or can do. Um, it's been such a big change. And I think there are more, there's more like that in other parts of life other than parenting now that I could work with. Yeah, it's another, I, I, it just feels very uh, real and present for me because I'm also in the middle of the parenting. Um, I think it's Daniel Siegel who did research on, he's a child pediatrician and a mindfulness a neuroscientist expert. So, done research on children and adults and the brain development. Uh, and yeah, he basically, his research basically points to what you just said. Great parenting is, is being not doing. Because the child has yet to develop strong identities attached to stories. They grow over time. And then you need to cultivate the, the posing skill, which is what we're pointing to here is to letting go of the story. But it's like you need the stories before you can let go of them. So otherwise you just who's gonna put the food on the table, right? I think this this is one of the things that it's simple but not easy. Uh it's a simple concept to let go of stories. And I, I do believe we need that more now than ever in order to just survive. Uh, as, as humans, but we have not, we haven't got the the tools for how to do so. Most of us, most of it. I mean, it feels like for me and my family, we've been on this accelerating path of shedding old stories, and just trying to calibrate and coming closer and closer to reality. And it feels like it's accelerating, it truly is. And it's difficult. It's very stressful. I can't deny that. And I look around and it feels like most people are quite oblivious to where we're at as a culture and society, right? And I think the, the larger this gap becomes between reality and the story, the harder the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it feels, I feel a lot of, um, what comes up now is a lot of sorrow because there will be so much pain in this process. And I can feel it in my extended or like close family. Like when signals are coming, people deny them until you can't anymore. And then it's very painful. I mean, the whole COVID situation gave us a small earthquake, but I think more are coming. And I'm just trying to figure out for myself, but also for others, how do we build resilience and capacity for shifting stories in a time where old stories are breaking down? I think that's one of the most important things we can do because attaching to a story that is dying creates a lot of suffering not only for you, but for people around you. When I look around, I haven't seen anybody who's really nailed it yet at scale. 
So this word comes back again, the scale thing. <laughs> but I do think <laughs> we need scale because uh, there's a lot of people who's going to move through this. And I can't even imagine the pain. So very like personal. I live in uh, Stockholm, Sweden, and uh, throughout my 40 plus year life, uh, I've experienced the Baltic Sea to be a place of thriving. Like I went used to go out fishing with my dad when we were when I was a kid, and um, there was plenty of fish everywhere. And when I tried to go out fishing these past few years, there's no fish. Because the Baltic Sea is very sensitive and to environmental disturbances. So the effects that that is having on my identity as a Swede, as a person living close to the ocean, I mean, it's extremely painful. And it scares the living crap out of me. And I'm thinking like, okay, if I want to experience and cultivate more more life and more thriving, is this the place to be? Not only for the the Baltic Sea thing, uh, but like for for many reasons, culturally and societally. So that question is very present for me. And like I'm I'm currently here with my family, but we're open to anything right now, it seems. I think that's an invitation for more people to explore. Like, is the place you've been living the best place to keep living? Um, and the relationships you have, are they the best relationships to keep having? So it's a very difficult uh, exploration that I think needs to happen. I, I want to say something to that because I, I have this theory that I'm testing and I'm, 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 I'm not testing it as an, an, an idea. I'm trying to live it. So, so it's, it's tangible to me, although it might, might sign, sound sort of idea-y. But I have a feeling that the bringing in of scale into the story that you are, that you are speaking to, like of the Baltic Sea without fish, it's kind of that's the part where it gets a little bit dangerous because that's the part where one can start thinking there will be more life somewhere else, you know. And what I'm what I'm trying to play with is like is a shift to quality as a primary thing. And again, it comes in with this sort of more life, less life, but but quality being sort of the foundation of my metaphysics rather than subject object or or whatever we could call i don't know what we would call the current types of and, and then what happens there and what i'm feeling from a lot of these like permaculture people that i've been speaking to lately and like people that are running farms and so forth they're like in one sense you know their mission is hopeless because they want to do regenerative farming they want everything to be regenerative farming they really want to heal the soil you know and at the same time they have, but, but they are doing it. You know, a lot of them are doing it on like two acre farms, two and a half acre farms, 10 acre farms, 100 acre farms, like still like tiny farms compared to like the industrial scale farming that are, but they are showing it and they're saying like, somebody just said that, that there's a, there's a symbiosis there where, where you put this new thing into the, 
into the actually the, the analogy that I came across yesterday was was sourdough, and so you put the sourdough culture into the wheat, and then as the sourdough is working its way through the wheat, it's releasing exactly that which is needed for the bread to rise, and like the fermentation process is really taking care of and and unlocking capacity potential that wasn't there, and then. Each time you engage with it at the very, very tiny scale, you change the entire landscape and for like you change the possibility and the potential of the landscape for every subsequent step. And so while I can really resonate with your sort of the previous um, invitation to look at those that are around you and like how much of your own potential you have access to given your network and your relationships and, and like those that are do you feel calm and relaxed and like, or are you, you know, constantly triggered or limited or, or tense in some way? Like, do you feel like you, you have a right to exist or are you experiencing a lot of shame? Um, are you stressed or calm? Like those types of things like are, are extremely, I think, valuable and useful to evaluate your context. But I almost think like the, if we if we really let go of that idea of scale and just look at quality, then like any improvement, any move, any movement that you can create to come back to that, maybe on on a closing note from my side, like any movement that you can create in the system around you, it's movement, you know, and 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 that movement has a potential for resonance, and the only thing that matters is resonance because that's the only way that we influence the world. It's always how the system resonates with what you are doing or how the other person resonates with what you're doing. It's never what you're doing directly to it. It's always the resonance. That's the only thing that, that is there to be sort of propagated and, and grown and increased. And like in resonance lies that idea that the frequency, the amplitude, this oscillation will grow in like the, the depth or the height of the, of the wave, if you will, will grow over time if we keep doing it and keep keep sending that frequency. So I think it's a really good, for me personally, it's true that I think it's a really good idea to look at different contexts to unlock more of your individual social potential. And um, at the same time, I think it's really, really important to dare to stay around and to not go to Mars and try to save the save the planet from there uh, by just leaving it behind. You know, I'm not saying that's what you said, um, but I am saying that there's this, if we can do it with a calm nervous system, then to interact with um, the systems where they are, however degraded they might be, and to hold out hope for that they are, there's still something to do for them. There's still a pos possibility to save them. There's still potential in these dead systems. And as far as I've known with people that know much more than I do about um, agriculture and like all of, all of the different types of, of growing and farming, um, it's, it's almost true. <laughs> That's almost true. that You can almost make anything come back to life with the right type of care uh, and the right type of time. I agree with you perfectly. I mean, I think we're saying the same thing. I'd like to clarify, to try to make it short. I think um, because when I hear you describe it, uh, I'm also hearing that this this wave is increasing. So there is a scale as a component. But I think what is causing what is the, is the thing here. Uh, and I'm perfectly on board with the fact that quality, that 
sound quality can magnify and become uh, sound quantity, but not the inverse. Mm. Uh, so definitely need to start working with quality, no doubt. That said, when conditions sometimes are too difficult, you might need to think about the context as well. And the reason for this is, and what, what comes to me is, the way we interact in systems, uh, human relations or humans with the soil or uh, whatever it might be, is uh, if you're a small group of people that has a strong resonance, then that can create the sourdough. Whereas if all of those nodes are scattered in places where they're, they have difficulty calibrating their nervous system, uh, the sourdough is not going to happen. So I think, again, it's been a general theme here today, but uh, the both and keeping both perspectives mm -hmm. uh, alive, uh, is, uh, maybe that's the meta theme and meta uh, distillation of this is like uh, the dance and the oscillation is probably a very important meta skill to, to uh, foster. So having hope that it's possible to bring life to the place and relationships where you're at 100%. And also being realistic with what is possible within those parameters, also 100%. Uh, so it's 200%. At least, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and then with some synergy on top of that, it's like a thousand. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if, uh, if people want to find you or interact with you or bug you about stuff, where should they uh, go looking? Or maybe you don't want them to find you at all. That's okay too. Mm, I've been a bit undercover for a little while, but I'm definitely not uh, averse to contact. So um, I think you can go to humanstories.se, uh, my professional starting point, and there are ways of contacting me there. Uh, so great start. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Stefan, for. Diving in and for doing this in a with a with a very wide lens and a deep exploration, I uh, I think a lot about this. And strangely, there's like there's a low there's a there's a I, I said initially in our pre-talk that I have a certain intensity in my body at the moment, and that intensity it feels like the frequency kind of went down. It's more like a hum than a, than a it's less shrill than it was, and. Uh, there is uh, a feeling of force that's moving me. Like there's more, there's again, there's like a, an impulse to move. Um, and uh, that's was generated between us. So thank you for, thank you for playing with me. Thank you, Amit. It's been a pleasure. And uh, my takeaway is I feel, um, feel more in connection than I did before. Uh, it's meaningful for me to explore these topics with someone who's also uh, genuine curiosity and openness. So, yeah, I feel more connected. Thank you.